Spiritual warfare is real and constant. Evil abounds in our culture. We're living in a day where righteousness seems odd and sin is normal. People around us, they slumber in their lostness. They never see their desperate need for Jesus. Our children and our grandchildren are constantly bombarded with evil ideas that that will, if they give in to them, push them further and further away from Jesus and, and His will for their lives. Satan, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, and that's not just something he does out there. If he can, he would do it in our marriages. If he could, he would do it with our children. If he could, he would do it in our church. And, and really, he would just do it in any way that he can find to, to render harm and evil and, and ill on people's lives. Prayer is really the most powerful weapon we have against the evils of our culture, the evils of the spiritual enemies that we face. Um, that, that is the number one way we oppose the enemy and we oppose the darkness is through prayer. When we read in the Bible, we find that often God seeks out intercessors. Uh, there's a couple of stories in the Old Testament where God looks at His people and he, and he wonders why there are no intercessors. Why is it that there is nobody that's interceding to God on behalf of His people who are straying so far from Him? They, those people in that time, they needed intercessors. They needed someone to stand in the gap and to make up the hedge uh, for them because of what was going on. And, and our world is no different. I think God still looks down seeking for intercessors, seeking people who are crying out to Him on behalf of others. Our nation is in need of intercessors. I mean, the news is always bad, right? The, the news is, in fact, the, the news is typically so bad that before they'll show it, it has to be just almost absurdly bad, right? I mean, there's just just regular bad that would have been bad 50 years ago, that's really not even bad enough to show anymore. It has to be something that would that startles, that gets your attention, that makes you go, oh my gosh. right? The world, our world, our country desperately needs intercessors. Given the, the state of the American church, the quick decline of the American church, the, the American church needs intercessors. Right? Families need intercessors. I mean, divorce is rampant in common. Children constantly rebel and become prodigals. Uh, the families of our church, the families in our, co- in our community, they need intercessors. So you and I, we must be intercessors. So that brings up the question, what exactly is an intercessor? Now, we're not, of course, this is the, mostly a prayer service, so there's no slideshow, and all of the, the slides are filled, all the, everything's filled out in your handout. But what is an intercessor? An intercessor is one who always labors fervently in prayer for others. The best example of that is Epaphras from Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand complete in all the will of God. Now the way Epaphras prays, what it describes about Epaphras' prayer life, it gives us a great picture of intercessors, right? It tells us first that Epaphras was always laboring fervently for them, right? Interceding, since it is a form of spiritual warfare, it's probably not going to be resolved quickly. Right? I mean, who who has labored for someone in prayer? Someone that's straying, someone that's erring, someone that's heading down a wrong path. Those things are not easily resolved. It is not likely that we are going to pray once for someone, intercede for them tonight, tomorrow they are going to be squared away doing the things that need to be done. It will likely take time and persistence on our parts. If we are to be intercessors, we must be like Epaphras and always be laboring fervently for others. We must be committed to pray and keep on praying until God tells us to stop or He answers the prayer. But Epaphras also was always laboring fervently for them in prayer. He was laboring for them in prayer. And I like the word labor because intercessory work, prayer is hard work. Um, the word that is used for 
or the, the word labor, it carries with it the idea of struggling. It carries with it the idea of wrestling. It carries with it the idea of working to exhaustion and then beyond. Right? And, and if you've ever consistently prayed for someone desperately, someone that needed to be turned around, someone that needed to be saved, you know that praying like that, man, it, it's taxing. But I mean, it is emotionally taxing. It is spiritually taxing. And, and man, I'll be honest with you, a lot of times it is just physically taxing. I can, if I'm really laboring for someone in prayer, by the time I'm finished, I feel as drained as I do after a Sunday of preaching multiple times. I mean, it just completely wrung out. It is a lot of effort on our part. And so if we're going to be intercessors, we have to come into it knowing that it's labor. Right? Because, again, it's spiritual warfare. So Satan does not want what we're praying to happen. Right? He doesn't. If we are interceding for a person that is straying, Satan wants them to keep straying. If we are interceding for a prodigal, Satan wants them to remain a prodigal. If we are interceding for a lost person, Satan wants them to remain lost. And so he will do what he can to oppose us. He will make it difficult. He will do all that He can. Our, our flesh, our sinful nature will fight against that kind of prayer. And we have to be willing to do the hard work and labor in prayer if we're going to be intercessors. And then Epaphras was always laboring fervently. Uh, the Greek word that's translated as fervently, it, it carries with it my notes are all messed up. But it's where the Greek word agonize comes from. Right? It, it is agonizing over something. Um, that is kind of the idea of, of passionate praying. Right? It is agony. Right? When Epaphras prayed for them, he wasn't saying, you know, God, it would be nice if you had blessed the church and helped them in Jesus' name. Amen. Right? There was agony. There was, there was that sort of emotional commitment. He was groaning. Right? Like in Romans, it talks about with groans that cannot be uttered. Right? He just, oh God, do something. We're desperate for you. That's the idea of fervent praying. That is the idea of what an intercessor does. Intercessory prayer is not prayer that's taken on lightly. It's not prayer that's done casually there there is a time investment there is an emotional investment that we have to have in order to be effective and fervent intercessors and then Epaphras was always laboring fervently for them so they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God he was praying specifically he had very specific things he prayed for the church in Colossae right so when we pray as intercessors we pray as specifically as we can and, and here, here's the thing with praying specifically. I, I, I think a lot of times, and, and I won't project, I'll say for me, it's easy for me to pray what I would call a generic shotgun prayer. Right? God be with Bob. God bless Bob. God help Bob. Right? And, and sometimes I'm going to say those are legitimate. Right? Because if I really don't know what to do, and I don't know what's going on, Will God be with him in a way that he'll know you're there? God bless him in a way that makes him know you're at work? And God help him? That's a legitimate, those are all legitimate prayers to pray. But a lot of times we do know what's going on. We know what the lost person is doing and how they're pushing further and deeper into the spiritual darkness. We know what the prodigal is doing and what they're doing to move further and further in a way. We know what the person drifting is doing and what's pulling them away. And in those cases where we know what's going on, it is far better for us to pray specifically about those issues and those things. Now, if they are being pulled into some sort of sexual immorality, then we should pray against them and that sexual immorality. If they are being drawn into a cult, we should pray against specifically against them believing the lie that that cult is propagating. We should pray as specifically... As, we're going, as we can. If we're going to always labor fervently for others in prayer, we must be as specific 
as we can be, which again, that goes back to that takes time. It takes time to pray this way. But intercessory prayer is not the casual kind of prayer. Intercessory prayer is not the kind of praying that you can hit your snooze 14 times, get up and pray on your way to the, on your way to the work and hurried up time and the time it takes you to get from your house to the job. Intercessory prayer is a time when you, you set aside time and you pray, right? Because if you're going to always labor fervently, specifically, none of those things can be done quickly. All of those things require time, effort, consistency on our part. That's what intercessory prayer demands. That's one reason why so few people are actively involved in intercessory prayer. Now the reality though is every disciple of Jesus is meant to be an intercessor. Right? We are all meant to the best of our abilities to be an Epaphras for someone. To be always laboring fervently in prayer. I'm convinced that whatever else the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be, it is meant to be an interceding church. The church of Christ is meant to be a church that cries out to God on behalf of others, on behalf of a lost and a dying world, on behalf of the community the church is in, on behalf of the children of the church that are prodigals and straying, on behalf of those who are struggling, on behalf of those whose marriages are hurting, on behalf of others. The church is meant to be a praying church, an interceding church. And I, I really believe that strong, I feel strongly that God wants intercessory prayer to be a major priority for our church. And so for our church to be an intercessory church, you and I have to be intercessors, right? Because there is, and there's no nebulous entity that is the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's, there's us. And so for whatever our church is and whatever our church does, it depends on us being those things and us doing those things. So let's take just a couple of minutes. We're going to pray where we are. And as you pray... Think about this. Do you always labor fervently, specifically in prayer? And if not, are you ready to take that step and become an intercessor? And if so, before God, commit to being that kind of an intercessor. Commit to always laboring fervently in prayer, specifically. Because we all know people and families that desperately need it. I said, we can just say, I'm going to always pray. I'm going to be fervent for this person, for this family, for this issue. Commit before God to do that. Let's pray. Holy Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come in a lot of ways in awe of the way that you work in the world. Lord, for reasons that are known only to you, you have chosen to work through us, through our prayers, to accomplish your will in the world. Lord, your word tells us that, that sometimes we have not because we ask not. Jesus at times did not do miracles in towns because of the unbelief of the people. So God, there are things that you want to do, that you would do, but you won't do. Because no one is interceding. No one is crying out for that. So God make us. To be a people. 
who as you said in Isaiah would give you no rest. That we would always be laboring fervently in prayer. Lord, if at least for one person, at least for one family, at least for one issue, lay something or someone or a family on our hearts. Burden us. Make us to be an interceding church. Lord, as we intercede, as we cry out, that we would begin to see Your hand at work and we would see You save the lost. and We would see, see You restore the prodigals and we would see You bring those who are drifting back into the right way and we would see You heal the broken heart and open spiritually blind eyes and, and, and just do great and mighty things, Lord, which we cannot do. Burden our hearts to pray. Let your Spirit lead us to pray. Let us be a praying, interceding people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Second is ways to intercede. Since we're to pray as specifically as possible, I wanted to give us some specific ways to pray. Now, before I get to these, let me say intercessory prayer isn't always just for the lost or the erring. The intercessing Intercessory prayer can be for anything. You could intercede for your pastor. You could intercede for missionaries. You can intercede for those who are sick. You can intercede about any situation or anything. It's just you're always laboring fervently specifically for this person, this issue, this family. That being said, I would say the most common burden on any of our hearts are those who are lost those who are prodigals, those who are slave to sin, drifting from the faith. And because that's the case, I have focused the way that we're, the, these particular intercessory prayers, these ways to pray on those kind of issues. Right, so first, pray for eyes to be opened. Right, now, of course, eyes needing to be opened isn't really physical eyes. It's referring to, to spiritual ones. Scripture often uses the idea of seeing to refer to people understanding the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now there is a reason people do not see their need for Jesus and embrace or live in light of the gospel. And, and this reason is true whether they're a lost person it's true whether they're a backslidden person, a prodigal. It's true whether they're enslaved to sin. It's true whether they are drifting from the faith. This reason is why they feel the way that they feel. And is that Satan has blinded their minds and he prevents them from seeing their need for Jesus and grabbing hold of what Jesus can do in them and through them and for them. We'll talk more about it in a minute, but Satan is actively at work in the hearts and the minds of those who are lost, those who are prodigals, those who are enslaved, and those who are drifting. And he uses that foothold he has to keep the light of the gospel from penetrating their spiritual darkness. And that's true for each and every one of them. Now, despite the fact that this is what's true of them, they are blind to this condition. They believe they are on the path to life. Have you ever, how many lost people have you talked to that say, I'm just fine the way that I am? They're blind. How many prodigals do you know who are making an absolute mess of their lives, but they'll tell you it's the best it's ever been? They don't need what they were doing before. They're blind. How many people enslaved by sin will tell you they will swear they're not enslaved to this sin. They could quit any time they want. 
They're blind. How many people drifting down the wrong path will swear they are following God and on the best path they've ever been on before? They are blind. They are blinded to their condition, to the reality of their condition, and they are happily following a path laid out for them by the prince of the power of the air. And he will do all that he can to keep people from seeing the truth of the gospel, their need for Jesus, and turning to him, and either being saved, being reconnected, being set free, or being back on the right path. Now, all of that sounds bad. And it is. It it is just as bad as it sounds. But it's not hopeless. Because God can and God does cause the light of the gospel to shine into the darkness. So people see their need for Jesus. And, And the thing is, it's God that has to do it. That blindness that Satan has put on their minds, you and I, we cannot overcome. We can't overcome it by yelling. We can't overcome it by arguments. We can't overcome it by slapping them around. There is nothing we can do that will overcome the darkness in their minds. Only God can shine that light into their darkness. And God does this through His Word primarily. And so we pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to use the Word like a light to dispel the darkness in people's minds that they would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and they would turn to Him. And we pray this for the prodigals, we pray this for the lost, we pray this for the enslaved, and we pray this for those who are drifting. Now, let me say something about this. In many of the cases, the lost, the prodigals, the drifting, the enslaved, they are not in church, correct? So, there's not a whole lot of them going to church and hearing the Word and it working. But in many of the people we're praying for, they have been to church. They have been raised in church. They know Bible. There is Bible in their minds. There is Bible in their heart that has been planted. So pray. Pray God would use the Word that's already there. It may be lying dormant. It may be lying and they don't even remember it. But the Spirit of God can bring that up to their hearts. He can bring that up to their minds. And through that, He can shine the light of the gospel through their spiritual darkness and make them see their need. So pray the Holy Spirit would do that. Pray for Holy Spirit conviction. Before anyone will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, they must be convinced of their need for Jesus and they must then call on Jesus. But that is again the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't make this happen. Familiar passage, John 16, 8-11. When He has come, the Holy Spirit, He will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they believe not on Me, on righteousness, because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. Now, I think possibly, King James says reprove, other translations say convict, and convict is the language we typically use. But I think the word convince is possibly a better idea, because Convicting often carries with it the idea of feeling guilty. And you and I, we can make someone feel guilty, can't we? I mean, we, we can make someone feel bad about the decisions they're making. Look at what you're doing to your dear old dad. Look at how you're making so and so feel. Look at this. And we can make them feel guilty. But that doesn't bring godly conviction. That's not what this is. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't make someone feel guilty because someone can feel guilty and then not respond, not change, not do anything. But conviction is more of a convincing. What the Holy Spirit is doing is not so much making people feel anything, but making them understand something. He's making them understand uh, truths. He's convincing them of truths they had previously not known, not realized, or not accepted. Right, And, And so from what we see, in the passage, he is convincing them they are sinners. Right? A lost person, one of the first things they've got to know is they are sinners. And they have sinned against a holy God. A prodigal has got to know that their life is sin. 
Someone that's enslaved has got to know that what is keeping them, what is holding them is sin. And someone that's erring from the truth has got to know that what's taking them off the path of righteousness is sin. They have to. Then he convinces them that they are unrighteous. That this sin makes them guilty in the courts of heaven. Because again, if you and I were to convince a lost person or a backslider or someone who's enslaved or someone who's drifting that what they're doing is sinful, they will have a reason and an explanation as to why their sin is okay in their life, in their time, in this situation. And what they need to know is that their sin makes them guilty before God. And they are unrighteous. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And then they have to be made to know there is a judgment to come. So in our day, we have a lot gotten away from the idea of I don't want to of making people fear God, fearing the wrath and the judgment of God. And we have done that to our detriment. We have told sinners they are okay. And we've told lost sinners they are okay. And we've told prodigal sinners they're okay. And we're told enslaved sinners that they're okay. And we've told straying sinners that they're okay. And we were wrong in all of that. We should not have done that. It is wrong for us to soothe a sinner's conscience. The Gospel does that. Jesus does that. But only after they repent and only after they believe. If someone comes to us and they are, I'm condemned, I'm a sinner. The worst thing we can do is say, you're not that bad. That is wrong. That is wicked. That is horrible. What we need to do in that time is say, then you need to go to Jesus. For Jesus can forgive that sin. Jesus can take away that condemnation. It is not our job to soothe a sinner's conscience. Ever. The Holy Spirit must convince them that they will face judgment. And may God haste the day that the lost we're interceding for, the prodigals we're interceding for, that the enslaved we're interceding for, that those who are straying we're interceding for, may God haste the day that they have nightmares of going to hell and wake up screaming in terror over it. May the Holy Spirit bring that into their minds so they would turn from their sin that will destroy them and they would turn to Christ for salvation. Pray. And again, the Holy Spirit does this through the Word. So pray that God would take the Word that they know. God would take the Word that they may hear, that may come into their life, and He would use it to bring conviction into their lives. Pray for strongholds to be broken down. Every lost person, every prodigal, every person who's enslaved by sin, everyone who is straying and drifting from the faith, has some sort of a thought process that they've built up in their minds that is keeping them from coming to Jesus. Scripture describes them as a stronghold. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. But a stronghold, these high things, they exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So, what you have is a lost person, a prodigal, someone who's enslaved by sin, someone who's drifting. And you say, you need Jesus, you need to turn back, you need to go this. And they've got this argument built up. And this argument says, no, here's why you're wrong. No, here's what you don't understand. No, here's why I'm okay the way that I am. That's what that is. It is a stronghold that they themselves have built in their minds and it is exalting itself against God. God is saying, come to me. And this argument is saying, no, you don't need that. That doesn't apply to you. You don't have to do that. 
And a stronghold can be any number of things. It can be pride. Pride is enormous in our day. How many of us know people who would never humble themselves to admit they are sinners in need of a Savior? Pride exalting itself against the knowledge of God. False spirituality. Right? In our day, everything from New Age to I'm spiritual but not religious to getting the energy from trees, you, you name it. And there is spiritism in our world today. And spiritual stuff that is not Jesus' stuff. It is false. It is wicked. It is demonic. And it will exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Sin. A secular worldview. False doctrine. Shame. Shame. One of the things that Satan will do. He will drag a person deep into sin. And they will feel deep and abiding shame for that. And when someone says, you must come to Jesus to be forgiven, their shame exalts itself and says, God would never forgive you. You could never go to Jesus. You could never be accepted. That too is a stronghold. Hardships, pleasure, comfort, apathy, wealth, sexuality, etc. You you name it. And there is something someone can build in their mind as a stronghold that will exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And while these strongholds do exist, Paul said we are given spiritual weapons to break them down. God said in Jeremiah, my word is like a fire and like a hammer that breaketh rock in pieces. Strongholds are broken down through Scripture. Scripture is like a fire that burns junk and dross out of our lives, making us more like Jesus. Scripture is like a hammer that smashes strongholds and allows thoughts to be brought captive to the obedience to Christ. So we pray, the Holy Spirit, to use the Word. Break down those strongholds in the mind of the lost, the prodigal, the enslaved, and the drifting. So that every thought can be brought captive to the obedience to Christ. Pray for Satan's plans to fail. I mentioned earlier, Satan has an active role in keeping people lost. Satan has an active role in keeping prodigals away. Satan has an active role in keeping those enslaved, enslaved. Satan has an active role in keeping the drifting, drifting. He is actively at work. Scripture warns us about this multiple times. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 and 11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, we are not ignorant of his devices. The word translated as devices refers to strategies of the mind. This refers not only to Satan's scheming mind, but also the way he schemes to mess with our minds. Have you ever known somebody that was lost, was a prodigal, was enslaved, was drifting, and their thought, their thinking was just bizarro? I mean... They're thinking about God and Jesus and Scripture and life and everything was just off the charts crazy, it seemed. This is the answer. This is what's going on. Satan is playing games with their minds. Confusing them, deceiving them. Lying to them. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wiles... Deceitful methods and strategies Satan used to deceive and destroy. And he uses those against believers and unbelievers alike. The ultimate goal of these strategies is to keep people away from Jesus. I mean, that, that's, that's the ultimate goal. He wants to keep the lost from understanding and embracing the gospel. He wants to keep prodigals from returning to the Father. He wants to keep the slaves enslaved. And he wants to keep the drifters from returning to the path of life. And it's plural. Whilst he has a lot of ways. He can do it. First Thessalonians 3, 5. It says for this cause. When I could no longer forbear. I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter. Have tempted you. And our labor be in vain. Now this is to the church. And notice what Paul's afraid of. That the tempter had tempted them. Basically away from the faith. That's pretty strong. 
So when Satan attacks through temptation, there are basically, I think, three lies he always uses. It may come in various different wording, but these are the three basic truths, or the three basic lies of his temptations. One, this sin, whatever it is, it's no big deal. Have you ever talked to someone that was lost? Or someone that was a prodigal, or someone that was enslaved, or someone that was drifting away about their sin, and them act like you're overreacting? Oh, come on! It's not that big of a deal. Right? They react that way not because it's not that big of a deal, but because they bought the devil's lie. He is tempting them, telling them it's not that big, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. No one will know. How many. I mean, how many people have we seen on TV that their lives are destroyed because the secrets of their lives come out at some point? Many people do shameful things believing no one will ever find out. Satan's lie. Third, you have no choice. Man, that in our day, this is a winner winner in our day, right? You were born this way. You can't help but be this way. There's nothing you can do about this. It's a lie. It's a temptation of Satan. So he tempts. And he lays out sinful temptations, doing all that he can to get people to buy into them. He also, part of his plans involve condemnation. Revelation 12.10 says... I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. Satan is an accuser. Right? So you go from temptation to accusation. Right? He does it this way. He lays these temptations before you. And then he begins to condemn you for taking part in it. Oh, you've done that. You're horrible. You can't come back. Or or maybe he'll condemn you over something that happened years in the past. I, I've known believers who were honestly wonderful Christians. Loved Jesus. Served Jesus. But some sin in their past kept them beat down and bound them up so they could not live and serve to the fullest of their God-given potential. Not because God was holding it against them, but because Satan was pressing them down. Satan condemns through, through feelings of worthlessness. You ever talk to somebody and they just feel like their life is worthless? They are worthless? Man, that, that's not God. That is not godly. That is not righteousness. That is not anything of, of goodness. That feeling of worthlessness, it comes from the accuser. And he works to condemn people. And this is just some of what Scripture teaches about the plans of Satan. Regardless of which plan he's using against a person's life, the end goal is always the same. The damnation of their soul. I mean, that is his end goal always. So as we intercede for the lost, the prodigals, the enslaved, those who are drifting away, pray Satan's schemes against them. His plans for them would fail. And if we know someone, and we know what particular plan he's using at this time, pray specifically against that. And then pray for laborers. One of the greatest needs for seeing the lost saved, the prodigals return, the enslaved set free, and the drifting return is for other people to go and talk to them about Jesus. Jesus told His disciples, the harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His field. Now, there is a general need for laborers into the harvest, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, there's just a general need for people to go to the lost, the prodigals, the enslaved, and the drifting. That's not what I'm mentioning specifically here as intercessors. If we've got someone we're praying for, then what we pray is for God to send someone to them who will go to them, who will talk to them, who will share Jesus with them in a way they will accept. Because if you're like me, 
Sometimes the people you're interceding for, there is one person in the whole world they absolutely will not, under any circumstances, listen to. And that's me. And so, while I want to talk to them, and I will try to talk to them, I am not the one probably ever going to turn them around. So what do we do? We pray, God, send a laborer to them. Send someone to them to talk to them about Jesus. Send someone to help them. Someone who will share Scripture. Someone who is a fully devoted follower of Jesus. You know, don't let a weirdo, a wacko, a liberal, a loony go to them, God. You send a Jesus follower to them. And let that person influence them to turn back to Christ. Pray for laborers. And I know it's late and time's close, but I want to come to the altar and pray. Just take a few minutes and, and look through some of these and, and pray for whoever you're going to intercede for. Pray one or two of these and then when you're through, go back and sit down and we'll move on. Then I want to close talking about why intercession is important. Normally I try to end the prayer services on kind of a high, you know, huzzah, let's go out and charge hell with a squirt gun kind of a note, but not tonight. And that's because intercession is so important. It needs to be weighty and heavy on our minds. So why is intercession so important? The reason is our prayers may be the only thing standing between our lost loved one, our prodigal, our enslaved friend, and our drifter and the severe judgment of God. Now look at Ezekiel there. I don't think I don't know if the passage is quoted in, in the handout, I can't remember, but here's what it says. 
And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me in the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. I think this may be the most important passage on intercessory prayer in the Bible. It's written in a time when Israel was in rebellion against God, and which was often. But just the wording. That God sought for a man among them. He was looking for somebody to be interceding. Someone who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap. He was looking down upon the nation that was piling up the wrath and judgment of God against themselves. And he was looking down hoping to find someone who would be praying and crying out, God, spare your people. God, have mercy. God, send one more prophet. Give us one more chance. And it says, and he found and he looked for that. So that he could not destroy it. That I should not destroy it. God did not want to send judgment on His people. God never wanted to send judgment on His people. That's the point of the prophets. I mean, Jonah went to Nineveh because God did not want to destroy the Ninevites. He wanted them to repent and be saved. But he found none. So what was the result? Therefore, because there was none, I poured out my indignation upon them. I consumed them with the fire of my wrath. And their own way have I recompensed upon their heads. So here's what happens. They've piled up enough that judgment should come. God looks for an intercessor. A reason not to send His judgment, but there's not one. And so He pours out His indignation. He consumes them upon His wrath. And then He basically recompensed upon their heads their own way. He gave them what they deserved. God wanted to spare them instead of send judgment. So He looked for someone. But there was, there was none. God could have spared them. God would have spared them. God wanted to spare them. But with no intercessor, God did not spare them. So how important is intercessory prayer? Well, apparently it can make the difference between life and death. The, the last one is the one I want us to think about the most, right? Because in our day, the indignation of the Lord coming upon them, the fire of His wrath, that primarily is going to happen in hell. Right? But notice the last part. Their own way I have, recomp- have I recompensed upon their heads. He gave them what they deserved. They had sowed, and now He was going to let them reap. What is it that might keep our lost friend, our lost loved one, our prodigal, our enslaved, our drifter from reaping the consequences of the sin they have sown? What is causing a crop failure? What is keeping all of that from crashing down upon them? Very probably, our prayers And our prayers alone. It's not because they don't deserve it. It's not because they haven't earned it. It's because God is gracious. And God is merciful. And God is causing a crop failure in response to our prayers. Why has their sin not killed them and brought them into judgment? Quite possibly because of our prayers. Very possibly, the only thing keeping them alive is our prayer for God to spare them, to save them, to give them another opportunity. Quite possibly, the only thing keeping them from getting 
all that they deserve from the life that they're living is our prayers on their behalf. There is no telling what God can do in a person's life. We know what God wants to do. It is not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what the Bible says. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And the only thing that will give them probably continued opportunities, continued chances, continued mercy from God is our prayers. That's why we always labor fervently and specifically on their behalf. I'll close with this. When I was in the army at first, I did not live for the Lord in any noticeable way. I was most definitely a prodigal and a drifter. And I can look at my life and there are multiple times bad things almost happened to me. Nearly, if things had gone even slightly differently, I could have been killed, I could have been arrested, I could have been, so many bad things happened. Why? Why did those things not happen to me? Because I had a mom, and I had a dad, and I had granny, and I had a momo, and I had a church that faithfully, always, fervently, passionately, Prayed for God to spare me. And I I believe with all of my heart. I'm here serving alive today. Because God spared me in response to the intercession of others. We must not quit. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.